0: Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a bush, a fire, he flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was burnt on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn out. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God said to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here, I am. do not come any closer, God said, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, so I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Haibites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelis has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, so now go, I am sending you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? That I should go with Pharaoh and bring out, bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who. Said to you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Then Moses said to you, God, behold, I am about to come to the sons of
1: Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers, Has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name from generation to generation. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, Indeed, I indeed care about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt, and you all will say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Galilee our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not give you permission to go, except for by strong hand. So I will stretch out my hands and strike Egypt with all my wondrous deeds, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and of the woman who lives in her house, for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them up on your sons and daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians.
2: All right. Um, thank you. Last Friday, Chapter 2, the emphasis of that chapter was uh, the raising up of a deliverer, right? We began to examine some some important qualities of a deliverer, and namely, the, the biggest one was that a deliverer is what? One with his people. We we, we, we saw how the idea of corporate solidarity begins, it begins to expand, it's, uh, God expounds upon it, and what's corporate solid- solidarity? Do you remember that? What's well, kind of the main idea of corporate solidarity? Togetherness. Togetherness, right? Connection between the deliverer and the deliverer. Right. And okay, more a little bit more specific. But what happens to, to the deliverer happens to the delivered, right? So we saw how Moses was delivered from death in a little mini ark. And so what happened to Moses will happen to his people, the people will be delivered. Um Moses had a mini Exodus and the people of Israel will experience a, a larger Exodus. In other words, we we, we kind of uh kind of reemphasize this idea that we began with that that Exodus is is part, or, part, part of a greater story. It's not just some um kind of random historical event with miracles that happened 3500 years ago. No, it's a it, What happens in Exodus affects our lives here and now. Um, The messenger is the the message. Um, Jesus' Exodus in the resurrection to the promised land is an Exodus that you and I are going to experience because we're one with Jesus, right? What happens to Jesus happens to us. We died with Jesus, right? It says we died to our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. That's corporate solidarity. and chapter two ended with, uh, I think, a powerful, powerful um, statement that said that what God knows us. God, God knew them. God knew them. Um, before that, uh, Israel was crying out in their suffering, not crying to God. It's kind of a mistranslation there. They were just crying out to no one. They were just they were expressing pain to no one in particular. And <laughs> nevertheless, God heard them. God heard. Uh, their cries, because God hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows them. He he wants to know a select group of people at the beginning of the story of Scripture, at the end of the story of Scripture. So that means that in Exodus, God will be the driver, the main driver of all the action that happens. He's going to order all the events in this narrative. Today, in chapter 3, there is the focus on Moses' calling, but... In chapter three, we're, we're going to see a lot of how the the goal of God's relationship with the people. Where is this all going? Where, where's this? Where Where's God taking us? What's the outcome? What are, we need to have details about the outcome of our relationship with God. The the outcome of God knowing us. We need details, and and part of that goal will be will be understood by us through the revelation of God's name. We're going to learn um, some more about God's name. That's why I titled our study the Exploring the Name of Yahweh. Or in the name of God. So, if you go to first verse one, it says, uh, "Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law." How is that significant? I mean, is Moses just kind of, um, you know, opening up opening up this chapter with some preliminary statements that have no meaning? <laughs> Is it a kind of yeah I was just oh this is what I was doing. What, what's the significance of Moses pasturing this flock? So so a Okay. Uh, and, and, but who else who else who else shepherds in the Bible? Before Moses, who else was a shepherd?
0: Jacob. Yeah, Jacob was a shepherd.
2: <laughs> After Jacob, anybody, who else were shepherds? I'm
0: shepher- sorry? I think we have had things
2: uh, yeah, 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 He had a lot of livestock, but Jacob was specifically, really clearly, a shepherd, right? And um, with he Laban, saw, he sold saw was a hunter, yeah. But who, who, after Jacob, who else was a shepherd after Jacob? His sons, right? He tells Joseph, "Hey, they're shepherding the flock. Go out, see what they're doing." So Joseph went out, goes out. Um, after Moses, who was a shepherd? David was a shepherd, and who in the New Testament is a shepherd? Jesus, Jesus is a shepherd. So Moses is saying, "I'm uh, Moses is 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 a, is, a, is a shepherd. He's a leader. He's one of the one of the the especially chosen of God to advance salvation history forward in a, in a really big way. Now we we also know, in addition to that, that all of Israel are shepherds, right? That's their kind of what they do. They were put in the land of Goshen and away from all the rest of the people and because they were shepherds and and that was their livelihood and so um, Egyptians don't look down on shepherds. And so they're given their own little little space and so the fact that Moses is pasturing the flock shows that he's a leader, like the rest of the Bible shows, but it also shows what? And we t- we talked about we talked about this a little bit in chapter 2. It's identity, yeah. And so Moses is what? He, he's identifying with his people now. like Just like Israel were shepherds, now he's a shepherd. Uh, that's something that an Egyptian would never be. An Egyptian would never be a shepherd. An Egyptian, to shepherd, that was a loathsome to, she- to, to Egyptians. So we see, but in the beginning of chapter 3, Moses is really identifying with his people. He's no longer Egyptian. If he gets called to Israel, I mean, if he gets called to Egypt, he's going to go back as an Israelite, not as as an Egyptian, okay? Uh, uh, Verse 1, the priests of Midian, so we know whenever priests kind of come on the scene, there's some learning that's going to be taking place, and... Uh, Moses leads his flock to the far side, the west side of the wilderness. Um, how is that significant? The fact that he's in the wilderness. What happens to people in the wilderness? They get tested. They get tested. They get refined. They're matured. Like who? Like somebody give me some examples. And David, he ran away from Saul, was in the wilderness, right? They're tried, they're tested, they're refined. Moses is being refined, he's being tested. He goes to the, the, to Horeb, the Mount, Horeb's just another name for Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain. Horeb is, is Moses' favorite name for the, for this mountain. It's not not uncommon for, uh, geographical sites in the ancient Near East to be referred to by more than one name. We have in the Merneptah uh, Egypt is referred uh, is, is referred to under two na- two names, Kemet and Tamari. The city Memphis and that same uh, the, uh the rock or the stone stele is under five different names. And so uh, this is that uh, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And it's the mountain of God. That's where God is going to give his law. that well, that's where God will eventually manifest his presence to Moses. And because he's going to manifest his presence to Moses, he's going to And because Moses is one with his people, that means God is going to manifest his presence to Israel. So uh, next verse, verse two, an angel of Yahweh appears to him in a blazing fire. And it's in the midst of the bush. And and Moses looks and he sees the bush was burning with fire. And yet the bush was not consumed. It was a perpetual burning bush. And the Hebrew word is, for bush, is sine, uh, is it, uh, sine, sine, what does that, what does that sound like? Sinai. Sinai. So we think that Mount Sinai is associated with uh, that name comes from, uh, it's kind of related, uh, to this event of the burning, burning bush because of the similarity of the words. Now, where, where did we first see a blazing fire? Genesis, we saw a blazing fire somewhere. Not in Genesis. 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 We saw we saw a blazing fire. um, Yeah, right. When when God ratified the covenant with Abraham, when the promise became the covenant, he got uh, he he separated animals. He cut them in two in Genesis fifteen. And there was a smoking oven and a flaming torch, it says. Genesis 15, 17. A smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And God, so usually when you made a covenant with somebody, it was mutual. So let's say Jim and I, Jim's, uh, you know, I, you know, Jim sold me a car and I promised to pay him back in 12 monthly installments. And we said, okay, let's make a deal. Let's, let's get 12, uh, you know, 10 cattle we'll cut them in half, we'll split them in part, and so, and Jim and I would walk through the animals, both of us, and it would it would symbolize, it would show that that if we don't keep our end of the bargain, if one of us that don't, doesn't keep our end of the bar, bargain, may we be like these dead animals. Right? In Genesis 15, God's the only one who does it. Not Abraham. Abraham is what? He's asleep. And so God is saying, um... I alone will keep the covenant. I alone will keep the covenant. Now, when Abraham fell asleep, who else else fell asleep in Genesis before Abraham?
0: Adam.
2: Jacob. Adam. Jacob. Before before Abraham. Uh, Jacob comes after Abraham, so before Abraham. Um, So, the same kind of relationship that, that, that Adam had with God is going to be given to Abraham in Genesis 15. Um, the relationship with, between God and man that existed in Eden is being restored to Abraham and his seed. Okay? And so now you see a blazing fire in verse 2. So what is that, what is God trying to tell Moses and tell us as the reader? When we know the, before this, we saw that blazing fire in Genesis 15. What is, what is God trying to communicate? Yeah, that covenant relationship, Moses, I'm about that. I'm about that. This is what is going on right now. Same relationship that I had with Adam when he slept, when Abraham slept, is the same relationship I'm going to give you and to your people, right? This is how God is going to know his people through this covenant relationship. This angel of um, this angel of Yahweh is is God Himself. We believe it's the we call it the pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, not Jesus, because Jesus is incarnate, right? He's the God Man, but so this can't be a uh, uh, Jesus because so we call it pre-incarnate, right? Manifestation because it's we, we, he he appears as some type of being, probably a person. Um, but he's not a—he's not the God Man yet, and we call that the pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. How do we know that, that the Angel of Yahweh is God Himself? How do we know that in the text today, here in chapter three, um, in verse two it says, "And
1: the Angel of Yahweh appeared to them in a blazing
2: fire, and then verse." Yahweh saw that he turned his side <laughs> <that, so. laughs> yeah. Right. It, it, it says that he. he... Did. And in verse 2, the angel of Yahweh, That's and then in verse 4, that same angel of Yahweh, the, the same angel of Yahweh is now called Yahweh. And then after that, uh, uh, Yahweh, we see God called to him from the midst of the bush, right? So he's referred to as Yahweh and God in verse 4, in the midst of the bush. The angel of Yahweh is in the midst of the bush in verse 2, so we can conclude safely and certainly that the angel of Yahweh is God. Angel means messenger, 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 The messenger of Yahweh. Um, and, uh, the sec- the pre incarnate manifestation of the second person was, is, is a messenger of God, right? He's the, he's the image of God. He reveals God. He tells us who God is. And so, now in verse, verses three and four, God initiates this relationship. God is the one who initiates. Uh, this relationship, um, Moses sees this strange sight. He doesn't know what it is yet. He he's, he doesn't know why the bushes hasn't been burned up. Verse three, and then Yahweh saw that he that Moses turned aside to look at him. So so God called to him. God's the one who does the calling to him from the midst, midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Right. Uh, God's the one who initi, initiates this. And where did we see that pattern of this name, um, this, this, this twice-mentioned name back-to-back to, back to, to call somebody? When did we see that earlier? No, I don't think he said, I don't think there was an Adam-Adam. But there was in Genesis where somebody else was called out twice. Remember when uh, Abraham was about to to sacrifice his son Isaac? What did God say? Abraham, Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Again, so the same relationship that God is going to have with Abraham, God is going to have with Moses. Moses, Moses, right? There's echoes of, of Genesis 22. And Moses responds, here I am, here I am. Then he said, um, in verse 5 we we have a tension we have a tension right god initiates the relationship god draws comes to moses but the tension is this when moses sees god when god calls out to moses verse 5 verse 5 god says do not come near here do not come near here Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses is not holy, and God is, right? So there's this tension here. And we saw that phrase, the place. We saw that place is that, that that phrase the place in, in in Bethel, back in Genesis twenty-eight, when Jacob has a dream of a ladder from heaven to earth, and we began this theology of God's presence, and now God is building on this theology of his presence. He's building on this theology of, of God's presence. In Genesis 28 we just we, we, we see kind of the initial the initial information about God's presence that that he comes to, from heaven to earth right? But now in Genesis in Exodus 3 the, this tension is introduced and the tension is this God wants to be present with us but he can't be present present with sinners. So how is this going to work? How is this going to work? How is God going to truly know his people? Right? That's what it said. Chapter 2, 25. God knew them. How is he really, how is he truly going to know us when we can't wear sandals in his presence? Where we can't come near him? How do you know somebody? How can you get to know somebody when you can't go near them? Right? You need to draw near. You need to be close to somebody to have a real relationship with somebody. In order to really know somebody, you have to to draw near. Remember, I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the preview day with Moeller, and he was talking about, you know, online church, you know? Online church. He said, you know what? There's some things you can do on Zoom. Some things you can do, do on Zoom. You can have a business meeting on Zoom. You can talk to a, an old friend on Zoom, right? You can do a lot of things on Zoom. But some things, some relationships you can't have on Zoom. <laughs> you can't have a marriage on Zoom, <laughs> you know? You can't have a relationship with your kids on Zoom. Um, you can't even be a good neighbor on Zoom, right? And certainly you can't have church on Zoom, you know? You can't do church on Zoom. Um And this is kind of like that. This is like God saying in verse 5, hey, we need Zoom. <laughs> we need Zoom. You can't come near. you, you, you got to put a mask on. You, you can't draw near. Not because Moses has COVID and God doesn't want to contract it, but because what? Moses is a sinner and God is holy. Moses is a sinner. Moses is a sinner and God is holy. Now, as believers, guess what? We don't have to take off our sandals. Yeah. So before... God saved us. We were like Asians. When we came into the house, you'd take off your shoes. Now we can walk with our shoes on. We can draw near. Something has changed for us, brothers and sisters. Somebody named Jesus has changed our relationship with God. And God can really know us. God can really know us. But here, we're we're really early in salvation history. So God begins to reveal himself in verse 6. He begins to teach Moses who he is. And he reveals himself in many different ways, who he is, what his relationship with his people is, his agenda, his plan, why he's going to do what he's going to do. And so he begins in verse six by saying, I'm the God of your father and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the, and the God of Jacob. Um, I'm going to make their name great. I'm going to give them uh, a pro- the land that I promised them. But what's the problem with that promise? With respect to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what's the problem? In chapter three, what's the issue? Of, what's the issue of this promise of a promised land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're dead. So how is God going to keep the promise? How is going to keep the promise to them to give them a promised land? What needs to happen? in order for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham Isaac and Jacob to give them a promised land what needs to happen I'm sorry go their seed but he promised Abraham the land and Isaac and Jacob the land yes he promised their seed too but he almost he almost promised he also promised Abraham Isaac and Jacob How how can God keep his promise? If they're dead. They need to rise again from the dead. There needs to be a resurrection. There needs to be a resurrection. And that was Paul's point back last Sunday, right? Remember Acts 27? What did Paul say? He's like, I'm on trial for the resurrection, but this trial, but this promise... Of the resurrection in chapter 26, it's tied to the the hope. Chapter 26 asks, I am standing here being tried for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. The promise was they would get land, they would see the promised land Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that, but that can't happen unless there's a resurrection. I'm about, I'm about that promise, the same promise. I'm about the resurrection. And, that's, and that resurrection is tied up with God fulfilling his covenant promises to all of Israel. And so, I'm on trial for the same promise. The same promise the Jews believe, I believe, Paul says. But I'm on the one on trial. See, they don't realize God can't keep that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless he raises his son from the dead. And unless there's what? Corporate solidarity. Unless we're in him and he's in us. You see that all in Exodus 3. And, and we don't even know what, we can't. it's very, very difficult to understand what Paul is talking about in Acts 26 unless you get Exodus 3. And I didn't share that last Sunday when I preached. Because I didn't study Exodus three until this week, Alright? <laughs> and and now it's like, oh, how huh, okay, that that's how it works, right? You know, so that's why you need to you need to study the Old Testament because you need to understand the New. God's faithfulness will not fail; His covenant faithfulness will not fail, and He's going to raise people from the dead in order to fulfill His covenant relationship. Verse six, we see the goal. The goal is that he's going to be God of Moses' father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The goal is resurrection. The goal is resurrection. And we see determination, right? I am. I'm going to keep this promise. I am the God of their father. All right, this is how I'm, this is how God is going to know his people. He's going to keep his promise. He's going to fulfill his covenant relationship. His covenant faithfulness. He's going to raise them from the dead by raising his son from the dead. We don't see the son part here, but verses seven through ten, we we, we learn more about God's agenda. Verses seven through ten. And what do you learn about verse seven about God? What, what do we learn about what do we learn about Yahweh in verse seven? Yahweh is 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 what? He's compassionate. He's compassionate. Yeah, he's compassionate. He's compassionate. His salvation is a is a, is a a compassionate salvation. Verse 8. So I've come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious place, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Um, see, that this... This deliverance is built on, it's driven by the compassion displayed in verse 7. God's determination in verse 8 is built on his compassion displayed in verse 7. Oh, well, verse 8, I have come down. Where, where have you seen that before? That phrase, I have come down. I have come down. Tower of Babel. So there's intervention here. The same language of intervention we saw at the Tower of Babel. And and we learn more about more about this salvation that god doesn't just deliver his people from something he delivers them from something to something else so i'm going to deliver you from the egyptians to a land flowing with milk and honey god delivers us from sin to righteousness he delivers us from hell to heaven he makes lazy people not just not lazy. He makes lazy people hard-working people, right? He delivers, he delivers us from something to something else. This is the first time we've ever seen the promised land described this way, flowing with milk and honey. In Genesis, the, the promised land was never described that way. But this is not going to be an easy place to live in because we're, 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 in this place you're going to have what? Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites. In Genesis 15, there's 10 different resident peoples mentioned. And so, the Bible describes the Promised Land with uh, just a lot of ethnic diversity. And with diversity comes political fragmentation. Uh, With diversity comes conflict. When Joshua enters into the Promised Land, there's 31 different city-states, 31 different people groups. And that can be explained by Israel's unique geography. There was this major convergence of sea and overland routes, and that means the population was always exposed to great civilizations like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. Furthermore, in Israel, you have all these unique physical features and all these different microclimates, you have coast, coastlands, the desert, hill regions, deep valleys. And that contributes to, a, to really a distinct, different kind of people, right? Our geography, our weather, really uh, uh, forms and shapes the kind of a uh, culture that a people has, right? We know this. On the northeast coast, they're, they're, they're all a particular way. You go to tropical islands... Man, every, everybody's they're, they're they're all the same way. Um, you go to uh, you know coast, uh, uh, farmland, plains. They're a particular way. Mountain range people, they, they, they act a different way, and they're different, right? What do you have here in our in our country? You have people uh, people who are, li- people who are li- liberals live where usually they live in cities. Usually live in cities of more rural areas, they're more conservative, right? And so there's something about geography where it just, it really kind of contributes to different cultural values. And and Israel was like that in a huge way. Now, let me ask you a question. If this land is flowing with milk and honey, why haven't they been conquered by Egypt yet? It's not easy to conquer Egypt, exactly. Exactly. It's not easy to do. One scholar says this, pretty cool. It is surely an astonishing phenomenon that in the course of the entire history of the Promised Land, down to our own day, Israel alone of all the people of the earth succeed in imposing a unity upon that country from within, right? So Israel kind of conquering that land with its unique ge- geographical features, microclimates, and uh, physical physical features—that's truly hand from from God's hand, right? Verse nine, we see more of God's compassion, and and verse ten, God sends Moses to, to to Pharaoh. In verse ten, He says to Moses, "I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall bring My people." Right, the sons of Israel are My people. God's deliverance is an act of relational love. God's love is driving. His, God's love is driving His salvation for His people. Now, verse eleven, Moses said to God, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt?" Moses is not being humble here. Uh, this is just a polite way, a polite acceptance of an honor. You see the exact phraseology, and go to First Samuel with David. It's uh, First Samuel. my
0: household?
2: I'm sorry. David
0: said,
2: "Right, eighteen, 18. But David said to Saul, "Who am I? Who, who am I? And what is my life or my fo- families in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law?" Right. David isn't being humble; it's just on just a a way of honoring somebody's uh, bequeathal of blessing to you. Second Samuel seven eighteen. After he received the Davidic covenant, David says, uh,
1: "Who am I, O Lord,
2: and what is my house that you have brought me thus far?" Right. This is just a humble way of accepting a, a great gift from somebody higher than you are. But in verse eleven, guess what? There's no, there's no, there's no talk of God. In, in verse eleven, God, Moses is is focusing on himself. He's just kind of all about himself in verse eleven, and so. God, in verse 12, needs to say, Moses, you need to focus on me, okay? <laughs> Get your eyes on me. I'm the one who's going to be do- doing this, verse 12. Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign that you, that that, that is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain. So the sign God is going to give Moses is after the mission. Like, after you do all this, I'm going to create this worshiping, serving community and it's then you'll, you'll, you'll know who I am. And it's through this ordeal you'll, you'll learn to know who I am. And then so, as God, as God kind of gets Moses' attention and, and, and he says to Moses in verse 12, hey, Moses, focus on me. Okay. It's not about you. Verse 13, uh, Moses says, okay, fine, fine. Okay. Okay, God. Behold, I'm about to come to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they will say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses says, okay, I'll make it about you, but who are you? Who are you? Um, this, the interrogative what is, is, focuses on quality, not, not character traits, but uh, God's very essence. What is the fundamental, fundamental, fundamental way we're to think about God? How are we to relate to you, God? And in verse 14, God answers Moses. He says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He says, I am who I am. All that I am, I'm that. I am who I am. All that I am, I am am that God. (laughs) If God were to give Moses a particular character quality, you could could bring God to your level, right? Right? He said, Well, let me tell you, I'm I'm loving. What would Moses do? He would bring, he would think about love, love, and what loving means, and God would be like Moses. I mean, I mean Moses would be like God, right? I'm mean, sorry, God would be like Moses. And God said, you know, I'm gracious or merciful. Moses would think about what, what gracious and merciful means in human terms, and then Moses would bring God to God would be like Moses. Right? He would bring him down. He would He would be less than who he is. And so God says, all that I am, I'm that God. I'm that God. You can't define me. You can't define me. You can't bring me down, right? God is self-defining. He's not one of us. He has no peer. You can't contain him. You can't put him in a box. He's irreducible, He's going to be tr- tr- All that God is, I, I am that God. I'm the fullness of that God. You're nothing like me, Moses. None of you are like me. Um, but this God who is not like you or me in any way is exclusively the God who also invites us to know Him. He says, Thus he shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. This I am, all that he, God is. That, 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 this God, that, that that we're nothing like, he says, Moses, tell them I sent you. I want to have a relationship with his people. So he's this other he's this God of otherness that you can't put in a box, that you can't just say, Well, yeah, he's the God of the, he's the God of the crops, he's He's the god of, uh, nature. He's the god of, like, wisdom or, you know, all the different pantheistic gods. No, he's not like that god. He's not like those gods. Those, those gods you can put a little, and put in a little category, right? The sun god, you can put a little category. The ocean god, you can put a little category, right? No, no, no. I'm nothing like that. I am. All that I am, I am. You can't put me in a box. Um. It's kind of the, in the grammar, there's like a, a future tense, it's, it's imperfect, and so it's, there's this implication that, that what's gonna, what's gonna transpire in the rest of Exodus is God, is God further revealing who I am is, who He is. Verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, thus that so you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh. So Yahweh is, so I am, is, uh, is first person uh, Yahweh. We believe is the third is the third person of I am. So instead of I am, it's He is. So Yahweh in the Hebrew is He is instead of first person I am. So we believe that's uh, that, that's kind of where Yahweh comes from. And this is a wonderful name, uh, a wonderful name when when. Um, When the Hebrews were, had the text of scripture, when they read it out loud, to this day, whenever Yahweh, whenever the name Yahweh comes, they don't say Yahweh; they say Adonai. His name is so holy, so they don't. They don't when they read it; they just say Adonai. And so that, and because of that tradition, what you have the, you know, usually the the, the main uh, Hebrew words are, are are usually consonants, three consonants. That's the root word. And the vowel pointings for Adonai, the vowels for Adonai, they put on Yahweh uh, to remind them that you never read Yahweh. you Never read that out loud. But we're not that superstitious, so we can say Yahweh. Verse 15 is built on the foundation of verse 14. And in verse 15, God includes uh, his plan, his promises. His characteristics. All that God is, God will be all that he is. All that God is, he will be all of that God. And he will be that God to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and to Israel. All that God is will be for his people. Right? That's the, that's the agenda. That's the the agenda. The same Yahweh of Abraham and Isaac that he, he's unchanging. He's a, he's the exclusive God, the other, the only one, and this and a personal relation, a personal relational God, and that's and he says at the end of verse fifteen, this is my name forever. This is my name forever from generation to generation. That's how you will know me, uh, God. You can't bring down and put in a box. You can't put me in a box. You can't put me in a category. There's a total otherness, but but um, all that I am. I will be to my people. So verses 16 through 18, God gives Moses orders. He says, go and gather the, the elders of Israel together and, and say, say this to them. Now, this is not easy. This is not easy for the Israelites to, tr- to trust this former Egyptian criminal. And I want you to tell them, Moses, that the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, has appeared to me saying, I indeed care about you. This Yahweh, this other God, other, God of otherness, and cares about Israel. I, I've seen what, what has been done in Egypt. And so, verse 17, we, we learn more about the nature of Yahweh's name, that Yahweh is the Savior. Right? Verse 17, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Chebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm gonna, I'm gonna save you. I'm gonna save you. See, all that we know about God is found in our salvation, right? Salvation is the instrument where it brings everything together. All that we can know about God is brought together in one package in salvation. And so salvation is not incidental to God. It's part of his nature. God by nature. Is a is a saving God. This this is how God will will know us. He will save us. He will save us. This is part of what the name Yahweh is trying to communicate. He's a he's a he's a God you can't put him in a box, but a God who's going to to save you. Um. And verse eighteen, Moses, is, you need to be really clear about this. I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm the God over over the entire world. Verse 18. They will listen to your uh, voice, and you, with all the elders of Israel, you will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, "Yahweh, the king of Hebrews, has met with us. Yahweh is is the Hebrews' God." But listen, you you need to submit to him too. You need to obey him too. So now, please let us go three days into journey into the wilderness that we. May sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Now, as now commentators kind of kind of scratch their heads and shrug their shoulders, like, what, "What is this three days business?" I mean, it's clear that God wants to lead them to the Promised Land. He doesn't just want three days journey, and they'll come back. Is is God trying to trick him? And uh, you know, there's a couple answers to that. One is that. You know, one commentator, one scholar says that three days journey is like an idiom to, to go far away and never come back. That's kind of uh, a little bit questionable. Or another, another alternative ways is this is, this is, um, you know, this is kind of the initial request and the request is designed to show just how hardened Pharaoh's heart is. That he's not going to even allow a three day journey. So this is kind of initial, kind of, let me show you how stubborn, how prideful Pharaoh's going to be to you, Israel. Um, you know, we have historical records where there are other people groups, uh, ethnic people groups who would ask their ruling king to go worship their God somewhere for a few days. And that was, and kings would allow that. But, uh, but Pharaoh's not going to do that. Pharaoh's not going to do that. His heart's going to be hardened. God's going to harden his heart. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that later. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not give you permission to go, not even three days. And the only way, the only way he's going to listen to me is when I stretch out my hand. Except by a strong hand, verse 19. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand. And that that, that phrase, stretching out my hand, was was often used to describe Pharaoh as a divine warrior. Uh, we, we have, a, we have, a, we have a writings that Thutmose the second, and that was we know Thutmose the second. He was Thutmose the first. He was the pharaoh in Exodus one, and he was the pharaoh who decreed that all the Hebrew baby boys would be thrown into the to the Nile. Right? He has a son, Thutmose two. He, he's the half brother, half brother. Of Um and uh, he's described as the mighty arm of all people. He's described as the mighty arm. Unfortunately, put, uh puts him to puts him to the rest. And he's not so mighty. And so God says, "You know what? The, the real mighty arm is not uh, is not Pharaoh. It's not Pharaoh. It's going to be me." That's my my arm. And and, and again, we see what? God's determination. God is going to fight for his people. God is present with his people. God needs to trust in God. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Israel needs to trust in God. His people need to trust in Yahweh. Then in verse 21 and 22, God says that when you leave, I'm going to change the hearts of the Egyptians. And when you leave, you're not going to go empty. Verse 22, Every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman who lives in her house for... Articles of silver and articles of gold, and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Then you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, a side note: uh, it's kind of un- unrelated. Some people, when they argue, some Christians, when they argue for reparations, you know, reparations to African Americans in our country, sometimes they use the example of the Exodus as as a kind of a proof proof text and say, "Well, look when." When Israel left Egypt, you know because they were imprisoned, because they were you know enslaved, because they were oppressed for all this time, uh, they plundered the Egyptians uh, and there, there you have it there, there, here's biblical evidence for uh, the, the legitimacy of reparations for an oppressed people group. why is that why is that not true according to verse 22? Why can you not use that? as a proof text. Because God did
0: that.
2: Okay. That's that's yeah, that's that's some um, that's uh, uh one reason, but that that is found in verse 21. In verse 22, how can you what do you see that where you can't kind of mandate reparations? Cuz how do they get the silver and gold? Is it forced upon their neighbors? They they ask him for it, right? They ask and God changes the hearts of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians, out of the free will of their heart, they give to the Israelites for a leader.